Information Service. Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Sunday, January 22nd. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Heifer Foundation. I'm Jackie. Nancy. And here is your first story. On the front page above the fold, Rescue Mission Sees Rise in Overflow. More people are sleeping on the shelter floor than in years past as homelessness grows in Dubuque County. As sleet started to fall outside the windows of the Dubuque Rescue Mission cafeteria at 9 p.m. Wednesday, 10 or so men lay beneath the plastic folding tables that striped the room, wrapping themselves in blankets. The lights had been turned out about an hour earlier, and the cafeteria was dark, save for the fluorescent lights humming by the bathroom doors and in the hallway that led out to the stairs and the glow of a TV playing an action movie with the volume turned down. Pat Manderscheid, a retired 65-year-old machinist, sat in one of the few folding chairs that hadn't been stacked atop the tables, half watching the TV. He has bounced in and out of the shelter over the past few years, most recently after a string of knee and hip surgeries and cancer treatment, and knew all of the huddled bodies scattered around his feet by name. Well, most of them. Every morning you wake up, there's somebody new, Manderscheid said. They let them in, which is great, but it's getting more crowded now. In the winter, the street mission becomes Dubuque's de facto warming center for the city's unsheltered homeless population. More people are sleeping on the shelter floor than in years past as the number of people experiencing homelessness has ballooned in Dubuque County, rising 63% from 2020 to 2022. Communities serving rural areas across the U.S. also have seen homelessness increasing. The next floor up, in a faded leather swivel chair, Ricky Olson surveyed the cafeteria residents and a second group crashing in the basement from a bank of computer monitors in an office encircled by resident, re, residents' rooms. Often is what's known in the rescue mission as a captain, a resident of the rescue mission himself. He works the overnight shift in six nights a week, keeping an eye on the shelter's other occupants. The thing about working here is you just do what's needed, he said of his work schedule. While the rescue mission doesn't keep year-to-year -year records of the number of overflow guests, there is a consensus among staff that there are more people staying in the basement and on the cafeteria floor than in years past. Executive Director Mick, Rick Mim said, the rescue mission was 
up about five people staying in overflow from last year, with about 15 people in the cafeteria and basement. Another 25 to 30 people occupy the rescue mission's bed space on the third floor. In the fall, the rescue mission relaxed its COVID-19 pandemic restrictions and increased the number of beds upstairs from a limit of 18. This trend comes as communities serving rural areas across the U.S. have seen an increase in homelessness in recent years. Largely rural continuums of care, local government agencies tasked with managing homeless services saw a 6% increase in homelessness from 2020 to 2022, compared to a less than 1% increase nationwide, according to U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's annual homeless assessment report. A total of 921 people experienced homelessness in Dubuque County at some point last year, compared to 566 in 2020. According to Institute for Community Alliances, which uses data from local continuums of care, that equates to 63% increase. Over the last year, statistically, we've seen homelessness has grown quite a bit, said Shelby Epperly, a community services advocate with Community Solutions of Eastern Iowa, the area continuum of care. One group in particular that has grown is the number of chronically homeless people, defined by HUD as individuals who have been homeless for at least a year or repeatedly over several years while struggling with a disability, such as a mental health condition, substance use disorder, or physical disability. The number of chronically homeless people has doubled nationwide since 2016 to now make up 30% of all homeless people and the number of chronically homeless people in rural areas has grown by 27% since 2021, faster than anywhere else in the country. Dubuque Housing and Community Development Director Alexis Steger and the Telegraph Herald in December said the Telegraph Herald in December that the city has seen a rise in chronically homeless people that paralleled national trends. Many of the people sleeping on the rescue mission cafeteria floor met that definition. Several were not allowed a bed on the third floor because they had violated rescue mission policies or declined to seek treatment for their mental health or substance use issues. Olson has noted an uptick in guests struggling with mental health issues, which he attributed in part to the onset of winter. It's way harder on their mental health, Olson said, they're stressing over all kinds of stuff as you see them struggle a little bit more. 
Not everyone on the floor of the cafeteria would be considered chronically homeless. Some simply had gotten to the rescue mission too late to claim a bed. Epperly noted during a recent visit to the rescue mission that many residents she spoke with were experiencing homelessness for the first time. When the rescue mission helping to shoulder that additional burden, Mims said, it was time for the city and community to take a more proactive approach to aiding homeless residents. Steger noted in an email that the city has provided $350,000 to emergency shelters in the past two years to improve their facilities and expand capacity and has invested additional funds in CSEI's homeless hotline. The rescue mission is attempting to expand its services with an additional warming center at 1598 Jackson Street that will offer cots to overnight guests. That is planned to open in February following the installation of a sprinkler system to comply with city building codes. Manderscheid also was looking forward to the new warming centers expanding on behalf of his fellow guests on the cafeteria floor. These guys aren't bad, he said. They get a bad rap. Passing the torch. Local family businesses look to the future, starting with Honest John's Trading Post. Terry Meadows had no intention of joining the family business, but not long after studying psychology and beginning a career following that trajectory in Des Moines, she realized that she might be ready to reconsider. I never thought I wanted a career in retail, Terry said. It was fulfilling working in psychology, but it wasn't always fun. When I came back to the area in 1989, I was ready to have fun. While she was calculating her next move, her mother casually mentioned that they could use some help at the shop. It was a plea that would lay the foundation for the generations that followed. Today, Terry is part of the second generation at the helm of Honest John's, a chain of local stores now 42 years in the making. Her mother, Donna Anderson, launched the first store out of Kennedy Mall before setting up its flagship location, Honest John's Trading Post on Main Street in Galena. Upon Terry's return, the business expanded to include a second location in Honest John's Emporium, a women's clothing and accessories boutique, which later included a location in Dubuque. It also added Honest John's General Store in Galena, managed by Terry's husband, Dana Meadows. After graduating from then Clark College and serving in the Army, Terry's brother, Don Anderson, returned to take on another spin-off store, Union Leather, in Galena. While it was the brainchild and labor of love for the family matriarch, the stores took their name from the patriarch, John Anderson. 
It was Mom's dream, Terry said with a laugh. Dad went along with it, but they both were very involved in getting it up and running. Since John's death in 2020 and Donna's in 2021, Dana now manages Honest John's trading post, while Terry continues to manage the Emporium in Galena. Don also continues to manage Union Leather. A third brother, Steve, also assists at the shops. It's the first generation that has the passion, Dana said. That might not always continue in the second or third generation. However, a third generation did unexpectedly emerge in Terry and Dana's children. Anna Meadows manages the former Dubuque Emporium location, now called Mamarella, and featuring maternity clothing and other products for moms. Stewart recently returned to Galena after studying business and working in corporate retail. He also assists at the stores. We were actually discouraged from joining the family business. During the gap year I took, they would only offer me limited hours, just so I wasn't staying here out of obligation, said Anna, who once included not working at the family store on a list of 50 of her life goals. But after she went to college, she had the opportunity to study abroad and gain wisdom in years, like her mother. Anna also reconsidered. More recently, she announced a pregnancy through a onesie that read, Honest John's Fourth Generation. I think they wanted us to go off, do our own thing, and have the vehicle to find our own passion, Anna said. But I also think they wanted us to know that if we came back, it was by choice, and we appreciated what our grandparents started and what our parents were carrying on. Because we do, it makes it hard to leave. Terry added, we never knew it was something they wanted to do or would do. I think I relate more now to what my mom and dad had to go through to run the business, and I see our kids in the position I was in when I first came back. We're just grateful that they took an interest. The founding of a legacy. According to Family Business Alliance, family-run enterprises account for about 62% of employment in the United States and are responsible for 78% of all new jobs created. At one point, more than 30% of those businesses were continued through a second generation. However, in the past five years, that number has dropped to 19%, attributed to millennials not wanting to take over the traditional family business, but instead selling it and using the proceeds to launch a different family venture. It's twofold because we love to be able to see our parents retire and help expedite that, Stewart said. Speaking to his role as part of the third generation of Honest John's. But there were changes to the business when my parents took it over. And in the third generation, we're already beginning to put our own mark on it. We keep its core intact, but every generation has new opportunity to make it their own. This has also happened with the Brightbox family building into the future. Fortunately, a lasting legacy has so far been the case for Mike and Cindy Breitbach, who are fifth-generation owners of the country dining in Balltown, Iowa. 
The establishment opened in 1852 under a federal permit issued by President Fillmore, only six years after Iowa became a state. It was purchased ten years later by Jacob Breitbach. Throughout its history, it has served as a residence, a stagecoach shop, stop, a hotel, a grocery store, a tavern, and a restaurant. The latter has been carried on in the family, even through a gas explosion and fire in 2007, and a second fire only 10 months later. Construction of its current restaurant was completed atop the original tavern location in 2009. The Breitbach's seven children, as well as several grandchildren, are in line to continue carrying the torch and often can be found waiting on tables, washing dishes, or tending bar. I've been working here since I was about eight, Mike said with a laugh. It's just always what I've done, and it's carried on. My dad had a stroke, and everything just fell into place. My wife and I are the fifth generation. Our kids are the sixth. Hopefully they carry it on, and it continues. Cindy described the changing of hands through the years as a natural progression. It was the same for us as it was for Mike's mother and father when they took over the business, she said. Things just seemed to come to a natural point where it made sense, and it worked out well for everyone. In 2009, the restaurant earned an American Classic Award from James Beard Foundation, and in 2012, Iowa Pork Producers Association named its pork tenderloin the best in the state. The following year, Brightbox was featured in an award-winning documentary, Spinning Plates. Then, in 2022, Mike and Cindy were honored as the Iowa Restaurant Association's Restaurateurs of the Year. The family mindset moving forward is that if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And while a sixth generation of Brightbox are standing on the edge, waiting to fall in, as Cindy puts it, she also emphasized that family can be identified in many ways. Woman reaches 300 blood donations. Dubuque resident Margie Schuler reached a personal milestone this month. After nearly 20 years of giving blood, Schuler made her 300th donation with her most recent visit to the Impact Life Donation Center on Asbury Road. Over those years, she had given a little more than 37 gallons of blood. I never dreamt I would reach that number, Schuler said. Each time I donate, I help three people, so that's definitely a lot of people. Schuler has donated blood platelets every other Wednesday since 2004. She is known by all the employees at the Impact Life Donation Center and has become friends with several other regular donors. For Schuler, donating blood started as an idea for something new she and her brother could try doing, but it quickly turned into part of her identity. Before she knew it, her husband was joining her for donations and her grandchildren were sending her pictures when they donated blood. She identifies her car by its blood donor bumper sticker. All cars today look the same, so that's just how I pick mine out, she said. 
January is National Blood Donor Month in the U.S., and Schuler is among regular donors that organizations such as Impact Life and the American Red Cross rely on to supply hospitals with blood. Having that consistent supply of blood each month is really important for our area, said Kirby Wynn, Public Relations Manager for Impact Life, which serves more than 120 hospitals in Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Missouri. We know Margie has scheduled out her donations for the next year. That's always a very good thing for us. Wynn said Impact Life aims to collect about 3,500 to 3,600 blood donations per week across its region. But on some weeks, particularly around holidays, donations fall to around 3,200. We had some really heavy losses in January, Wynn said. It's made it harder to maintain that steady flow of blood donation. Emily Holly, Regional Communications Manager for the American Red Cross, Nebraska-Iowa region, said about 5% of Americans donate blood despite the widespread need for blood in hospitals. A blood transfusion is one of the most common procedures out there, Holly said. Blood is something that we use all the time. Schuler said she hopes she can inspire others to donate as well. For her, it is a simple way of giving back to the community and helping people in need. She recalled a time when a stranger saw her bumper sticker and waited by her car to thank her for her donation. She knew then what all that time spent donating blood was meant for. It feels amazing that I can help in that way, Schuler said. It's such a simple thing, but it can save people's lives. Another view from the opinion page. Educational savings accounts would reduce barriers for families. The Students First Act, currently making its way through the legislative process, has the potential to provide impacts for families and students across Iowa. School choice legislation, like other hot-button issues, can lead to strong opinions being shared by those both for and against these proposals. I would like to take this opportunity to point out some of the items in this legislation to help build awareness of this proposal. First, the portion of the governor's proposal getting the most attention is the provision for educational savings accounts, ESA. An ESA is different from a voucher in a number of ways and to call them a voucher is inaccurate. An ESA is similar to a medical flex spending account many individuals have as an employee benefit. In an ESA, qualified families would annually receive funds from the state to spend on approved educational related purposes. <coughs> These funds would only be able to be spent at eligible entities and could be used for items 
beyond accredited non-public school tuition and fees, such as tutoring or other educational needs or supplies. An ESA is not a voucher because the funding does not directly flow to a non-public school. In the current proposal, an ESA would initially only be available for students entering kindergarten, transferring to an accredited non-public school from a public school, or current accredited non-public school students income eligibility guidelines. As the proposal is phased in, all families in Iowa, no matter where their children currently attend school, would be eligible to receive an ESA. Often we hear families are interested in attending a non-public school, but finances get in the way. Providing all families a choice with an ESA reduces that barrier, allowing parents who are the primary educators of their children to have the opportunity to make the choice of where they believe their child will receive the best education. Another important factor to mention is Beckman Catholic, along with the other 43 Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Dubuque, are accredited. Without accreditation, employers, the military, and colleges and universities have the option not to recognize or accept a student's diploma, as they cannot be certain of the quality of education a student receives. Accreditation means an outside organization or entity has reviewed the school, its staffing, and its offerings, and provides a seal of approval. For no, most of the non-public schools in Iowa, that accreditation comes from the Iowa Department of Education, which means many of the rules our public school partners need to follow also apply in our schools. Public schools will also benefit from this proposal. Currently, public schools are restricted with some of the funding they receive and can only use it for particular items. Under this proposal, public districts would be granted flexibility to use nearly $250 million they receive annually from the state in new ways, including these funds for teacher salaries. At the heart of this issue is who ultimately serves as the primary educator of students. Educational savings accounts allow parents to fulfill that role with new tools in hand. Let's allow parents the opportunity to make the best choice for the education of their children. And another view on the same issue, Iowa legislation failing to put students first. The Iowa legislature is currently moving a controversial school voucher bill through its chambers that certainly appears des designed to strip public funding away from public schools that have been historically underfunded for the past decade. But no one seems to be able to answer what I believe is a straightforward question. Where is the evidence showing the Students First Act voucher bill will improve student outcomes for all students in Iowa. How will this legislation specifically raise student achievement, especially for students in underrepresented groups? In fact, according to a research overview from the National Coalition for Public Education, vouchers do not improve student achievement and in many states, 
lead to a decline in achievement. Recent studies of the Louisiana, Indiana, and Ohio voucher programs have demonstrated that students who used vouchers experience worse academic outcomes than their peers. In addition, studies of long-standing voucher programs in Milwaukee, Cleveland, and the District of Columbia found that students who received vouchers showed no improvements in reading or math over those not in the program. Some legislators, however, seem to ignore these facts related to achievement. They have even rewritten procedural rules to bypass the legislature's established committee process and limit opportunities to dive deeper into the issue. Instead, they say, they believe in choice and competition. Should parents or guardians have the choice where to send their children to school? Absolutely. And they already do via in-district transfers, district-to-district -district open enrollment, STO tax credits for those attending private school, homeschooling, and more. But a look at the legislation's wording indicates that the choice is for the private school rather than the parent or student. The bill specifically states it does not authorize any agency to require a non-public school to modify its academic standards for admission or educational programs. So the choice is yours, unless a school chooses to deny a student's admission because that person has specialized learning needs, behavioral challenges, or for any other reason. Private schools will maintain the ability to choose which students they accept or deny while receiving taxpayer dollars for students that already attend. That's not to mention students who attend school in a rural district where no private school option exists. Sorry, you are out of luck too. The bill apparently defines competition as playing by a completely different set of rules than public schools, even specifically noting that rules adopted by the Department of Education that impose an undue burden on a non-public school are invalid. As a public school district, we have a publicly elected board built to public accountability and transparency measures, required testing, required reporting, and the list goes on. If there were truly competition, private schools accepting tax dollars would be held to the same accountability measures in place for public schools. If these measures have been put in place to ensure success and transparency, private schools should be held to the same standards. If they are in fact a burden, perhaps they should be removed for public schools as well. As a school board member and a parent with students in both the public and private systems, I urge you to contact your legislators to let them know you oppose the Students First Act and that before we fund a second education system in the state, 
we should fully fund the primary one. Now a letter to the editor in regard to Reynolds having education bill on the fast track from Donna Bowerly of Dubuque. School choice now on a fast track? Why is this a new wrinkle for a most important issue that could involve millions of dollars for taxpayers and a potential loss of millions of dollars to the public schools? I was on the Dubuque Community School Board for 13 years and in each year our excellent public schools were woefully underfunded as they are now. A 2.5% increase for next year is deplorable. Speaker Pat Grassley created the Education Reform Committee with input by the House Rules and Administration Committee who added rules to bypass the House's Tax and Spending Committee to consider major legislation such as the Governor's plan to provide state funds to families choosing to enroll their children in private schools, as reported in January of 2023. Can you keep up with all the fast tracking? Unusual for a governor who often finds ways to slow down or stop major considerations. How about stopping the state updates of COVID cases and even deaths? Why did she choose not to apply on time for millions of federal monies for childcare or affordable housing, also reported in November of 2022. And why did Governor Reynolds groom many newly elected legislators who agree with this present school choice plan? Keep the following, keep following the ongoing saga of school choice and don't blink. Governor Reynolds has learned to fast track. Why? You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your reader is Jackie and Nancy. If you have any comments on this or any IRIS program, please call 243-6833 or toll free at 877-404-4747. And don't forget, this and many other IRIS programs are available from our website at iowaradioreading.org. Now we return to the Telegraph Herald and to today's obituaries. Michael J. Buddy, Asbury, Iowa. Michael J. Buddy, 77, of Asbury, Iowa, died January 19th at his home surrounded by his wife Linda and daughters Sarah and Rachel. His last smile in life was hearing his grandchildren say their goodbyes before he passed peacefully away. Visitation will be from 3 p.m. until 6.45 p.m. Monday, January 23rd at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. A prayer service will be held at 6.45 p.m. The Mass of Christian Burial for Mike will be 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th at Church of the Resurrection with Father Phil Gibbs as the celebrant. Full military honors will be rendered immediately after Mass by the American Legion. Internment will be at Mount Calvary Cemetery 
at a later date. Michael was born September 18, 1945, in Dubuque, Iowa, the son of Norbert William and Dorothy Maybuddy. He has said on that day he won the parental lottery. His parents provided him a foundation in family love, loyalty, and hard work. On November 16, 1968, he married Linda Miller in St. Mary's Church, where the rest of us would say he won the wife lottery. His daughters, Sarah and Rachel, would continue this winning trend with the child and later grandchild lottery. He served his country in the United States Army beginning in 1965 and served a tour of duty in Vietnam. He was honorably discharged as a Specialist 5 in 1968. After discharge from the Army, Mike returned to school receiving a BA in Sociology and Teaching from Loris College, an MA in Sociology from Marquette University, and an MED in Sociology from South Dakota State University, where he was also a doctoral candidate. He embraced education and fell in love with teaching. He had often said he enjoyed teaching so much he would have done it for free. Mike continued to challenge himself, however, and took a shine to entrepreneurship after he was asked to consider starting a business while Dubuque was experiencing record high unemployment rates. He accepted this new challenge and in 1988 formed Advanced Datacom, which he owned and operated as CEO for 20 years. After selling the business, he returned to his first love in education at Loris College and held an administrative advisory role for another several years before retiring in 2011. Mike came out of retirement temporarily to serve as interim CEO at National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium in 2017. Mike was very active in his community, including civic involvement as Asbury City Council member and Asbury Mayor. He served on many boards, including Mercy Medical Center, National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium, Dubuque Girls Club, Iowa Workforce Development, Region 1, Holy Family Catholic School System, Matter Creative Center and University of Dubuque. He was loved by many for his wisdom, quick wit, and sarcasm. Mike loved his wife Linda, his daughter, and grandchildren family fiercely and always expressed his pride in his family. Linda was indeed what he called the better half and provided him the strength and support to allow him to achieve his goals. He loved to joke that he should actually introduce himself as Mr. Linda Buddy. He was always so proud of her. He enjoyed woodworking and eating out with his friends. He was an avid fan and frequent attendee of Loris College women's and men's basketball and Dubuque Fighting Saints hockey games. Survivors include his wife Linda Buddy of Asbury, two daughters Sarah Siegert and Rachel Stearman, five grandchildren, 
a brother Norbert Buddy of Evanston, Illinois, sister Marilyn Lawler of Springfield, brother-in-law Randy Miller, sister-in-law Deborah of Peyton, and Christine Miles of uh, Swisher, Iowa, niece and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, Norbert and Dorothy Buddy, and stepfather George Berg, his father-in-law Dale H. Miller, and mother-in-law Charlotte L. Gottenbine Miller and stepmother-in-law Shirley Bennett Miller. The family also wishes to extend their most sincere thanks and gratitude to all the companion and comfort provided by Hospice of Dubuque, including all his caregivers, Creo, Angela, and Carla. In lieu of flowers, contributions may be made at the Loris College Mike and Linda Buddy Teaching Excellence Award or Hospice of Dubuque. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in charge of arrangements. Joseph Terry, Galena, Illinois. Dr. Joseph Terry passed away quickly and peacefully on January 23rd at his home with his wife Pat and his son Jim beside him. Joe was born May 22, 1927, in Davenport, Iowa, to Colonel Clyde and Marie Hunter Terry. He and his three brothers were raised by their mother and grandmother, Mary Sanders Hunter. He graduated from Davenport High School, served one year in the Navy at the end of World War II, and went on to St. Ambrose College and Iowa State College to attain his DVM degree in 1952. Joe married Pat Terry on August 13, 1949 at St. John's Methodist Church in Davenport. Pat taught in the Ames area for three years while Joe finished his degree. They moved to the Evanston-Wilmette, Illinois area to practice veterinary medicine for 40 years. Joe's love for animals was reflected in his thoughtful care of pets, including exotics, at his practice, Terry Animal Hospital in Wilmette, his volunteer work at Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, and his wide range of family pets. Joe and Pat's lifelong appreciation of music was integral in their first meeting and falling in love while members of the seventh grade string quartet. Their participation in the Tri-City Orchestra, ISC Orchestra, Evanston Symphony and Community Orchestra, and the Grace Church Choir lifted the hearts of the communities in which they performed. Joe's wishes for all living things' well-being informed his interactions with everyone he met. From driving local people, especially mothers with babies and small children, to medical and dental appointments, to his service in Lions Club, Rotary International, and many charitable contributions. He is survived by his wife Patricia, his daughter Robin of Evanston, sons James Terry of Hanover, Illinois, and Mark Terry of Kennebunkport, Maine, 11 grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, two older brothers, Jack and Jim, and a younger brother, Jay. There will be a memorial service for Joe at Grace Episcopal Church 
107 South Prospect Street in Galena at 10 a.m. Thursday, January 26th. Marilyn T. Burkle, Lexington, Kentucky. Marilyn Teresa Burkle of Lexington, Kentucky passed away January 15th at the age of 67. Cause of death was an intentional overdose of various pain medications ending a long period of suffering. Marilyn chose to end her life with dignity at home rather than prolong a painful and uncertain future. Marilyn is survived by her husband of 37 years, Mark Christensen, her mother, Florella Buckle, and her brother and sisters, Dan Burkle, Dean Burkle, Doris Paragoy, Steve Burkle, Reverend Ray Burkle, Beverly Pryor, Douglas Burkle, and Leanne Ludwig. Her, fa her father, Arnold Bur Buddy, excuse me, her father, Arnold Burkle, died in 2003. She is also survived by many nieces, nephews, grandnieces, grandnephews, and too many in-laws to count. She was also lucky enough to have numerous loving aunts and uncles survive her. Marilyn was born on October 14, 1955, in Dubuque, the daughter of Florella Platten and Arnold Burkle. She grew up on a farm in Farley, Iowa, and her heart never left there. She graduated from Western Dubuque High School, where she made many lifelong friends. She spent most of her life in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, retiring to Lexington, Kentucky in 2013. She graduated from the Patricia Stevens Career College in Milwaukee. Her first full-time job gave her the confidence to seek a college degree. Her employer and investment advisor encouraged and helped finance her search for higher education. She graduated from Marquette University with a degree in accounting. She worked in the accounting field until June 1999 when she was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and depression. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2002 and was stage 4 cancer since 2012. Marilyn had many interests outside home and work. She was a sports enthusiast who participated in golf and softball leagues, winning several titles. She was a snow skier, a hiker, a biker, and racquetball player. She traveled extensively, visiting five continents, over 30 countries, and many U.S. national parks. She also rafted the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Marilyn spent many hours, actually years, researching her family tree. The Burkle Side was published as a 500-page book in early 2004. Marilyn was a very giving person. Shirley is survived by her children, Julie Simons, Cape Coral, Florida, and Stephen, Hazel Green. Devoted friend and companion, Richard Bodell of Hazel Green. Eight grandchildren and nine great-grandchildren. She was also preceded in death by her parents, a daughter, Lori Rundy, and a sister, Mary Midge Sterling. 
The family wishes to thank the staff of Finley Hospital for their care. June Cahill, Cascade, Iowa. O. June Cahill, 88, of Cascade, Iowa, passed away on Wednesday, June 18th at Acura Healthcare in Cascade, Iowa. Per her wishes, there will be no public services. She was born January 9th, 1935, in Powhatan Point, Ohio, daughter of David E. and Edna M. Palmer. June was in the Air Force for four years and worked with the AAFES Army Air Force Exchange Services as a food service manager. She was always very proud that she had served in the Air Force. She continued to work on Army and Air Force bases most of her adult life. She resided in Arizona, Texas, Missouri, North Dakota, Illinois, and then settled in Iowa where she lived with her daughter and her family in Cascade. She is survived by one daughter, Nora M. Garrity of Cascade, Iowa, two sons, Walter P. Capon of Missouri and David G. Cahill of Arkansas. She is preceded in death by her mother, Edna May Cordery, a grandson, Weston Samuel Garrity, and a sister, Elvira Toots DiMuccio. Jason Kevern of Galena. Jason Shorty Kevern, 49, of Galena, passed away unexpectedly Monday, January 16th. Friends may call from 4 to 7, Wednesday, January 25th, at the Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. A private family burial will be in Greenwood Cemetery, Galena. He was born December 23, 1973, in Dubuque, the son of Ronald Shorty and Carol White Kevern. He graduated from Galena High School with the class of 1992. Shorty worked for the Galena Territory Association for 32 years. He was a huge University of Michigan sports fan and enjoyed watching and following sports with his boys, playing golf and target shooting. Shorty will always be remembered as the life of the party. He is survived by his three boys, Riley, Braden, and Caleb, his stepmom, Kim Kevern, and three sisters, Kelly Arakovich, Jody Knotts, and Amanda Kevern, all of Galena. Shorty was preceded in death by his parents and his maternal and paternal grandparents. The family requests no flowers. A memorial fund has been established at Illinois Bank and Trust for his three sons. Geraldine M. Goodman. Geraldine M. Goodman, 88, of 2700 Matthew John Drive, died Wednesday, January 18th, at home. Visitation will be at St. Columkill, Dubuque, Iowa from 9.30 to 10.45 Friday, January 27th with a funeral mass celebrated at 11 a.m. The cremains will be interred at Mount Calvary Cemetery, Egelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory is in charge of the arrangements. She was a consummate musician having played her first professional gig at age eight 
and her last at 85. She was born April 29, 1934, in Dubuque County, daughter of Ray and Salome Hanton. She married Thomas G. Goodman on August 17, 1957, at St. Columkill. Surviving is one son, Tom of Dubuque, three daughters, Terry of St. Paul, Minnesota, Tori Richter and Kathy of Dubuque, eight grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband, and four siblings and their spouses, one sister, Melita Pomerich of Dubuque, and three brothers, Loris and Dan Hanton of Dubuque and Jean Hanton of Lodi, California. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the Geraldine M. Goodman Memorial Fund. Roger E. Quaid, 85, of Dubuque, died on Monday, January 16th. Visitation will be held from 10 to 1.45 p.m. Saturday, January 28th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Service will follow at 2 p.m., at Emmanuel Congregational United Church of Christ. John R. Nichols III of Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. John 15 of Prairie du Chien died on Monday, January 16th. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7.30 p.m. Friday, January 27th at Garrity Funeral Home Chapel in Prairie du Chien, where services will follow. Joyce E. Waters, 74, of Piasta, died on Friday, January 20th. Visitation will be held from 9 a.m. to noon, Wednesday, January 25th, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where services will follow. And now on a lighter note. An Ames woman hopes her crickets supply your next healthy meal. The tiny crickets Shelby Smith raises for her company, Jim and Eat Crickets, aren't going to solve the big problem of climate change. But pr to produce the same amount of protein, crickets take six times less feed than cattle, four times less than sheep, and half what is needed for hogs and broiler chickens according to a study published in 2021 in the peer-reviewed journal Nutrients. I like to frame it as another healthy option, said Smith, 32 of Ames. It's better to have another source of protein that takes less resources. Smith, a Waterloo West graduate who played basketball at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, founded Jim and Eat Crickets in 2018 after deciding she didn't enjoy working as an equity derivatives trader for a Canadian bank in Dublin, Ireland. She came home back to her parents' farm near Ames to regroup. Eating bugs came up on three different podcasts, Smith told the Cedar Rapids Gazette. She started reading everything she could about cricket farming and pitched the idea to her parents who were supportive. Smith raised her first 10,000 crickets in the break room of her father's shop on farm. The room was insulated and could be heated up to the necessary 85 degrees 
to promote cricket development. Smith spends a good share of her time doing interviews and speaking to groups about edible insects. When the pandemic struck in 2020, she turned to YouTube, making videos about raising the small chirping creatures. Her YouTube channel, There at There All Cricket Lady, There All Cricket Lady has 2,700 subscribers and started bringing in a small amount of advertising revenue in 2021, she said. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for January 23rd. I'm your reader, Jackie. And Nancy. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Heifer Foundation. The Telegraph Herald can be heard each weekday at 2 p.m., all programs heard on IRIS are intended solely for the blind and print handicapped. If you have any questions or comments on this or any IRIS program, please call our office toll-free at 877-404-4747. Thanks for listening.